0: Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. On today's show, we continue our housing series with a community discussion on gentrification and changing neighborhoods in Tucson. In June, AZPM News began our series, Finding Home, focused on housing and issues of affordability, access, discrimination, and cultural identity. Last week, we taped our latest episode at a live event at the Dunbar Auditorium in Tucson. We split the show into two panels. Our first featured people involved in development and housing. Later, we heard from residents of some of the neighborhoods experiencing changes. The first panel included Corky Poster, an architect and principal planner at Poster Frost Mirto, Betty Villegas, the former director of the Pima County Housing Center, and Jesus Bonillas, the co-founder of a local developer called The Common Group. We began by discussing the meaning of gentrification. Corky Poster answered first.
1: I hear a lot of talk about gentrification and it's described as good people and bad people. And from my perspective, that's really not a clear way of looking at it. I think uh, real estate, housing, all of that material has really become a commodity. And I think we live in a capitalist economic system and um, housing has now become part of that commodity system. And when folks try to act in their own self-interest in that system, the folks with more resources uh, tend to uh, win out over folks with less resources. And we have actually precious few ways of actually influencing that kind of very free market housing and, uh, and real estate business.
0: Betty, you're nodding your head. Yeah,
2: I I think about, about it in the affordability perspective. When I think about gentrification, I think about people are going to be displaced. And to me, it's gentrification and displacement are pretty much synonymous. So trying to find ways of keeping people in their homes is what has always been important to me. That's what I spent my career doing. So I believe that there are ways that we can curb displacement, but it ha- it's, it has to take a lot of resources and it has to take a lot of political will. And that's where we have to hold our elected officials and our administrators that work for the elected officials accountable, they have to be accountable to the people.
0: Jesus, you're the the founder of a development company. How's a developer responsive to the people, answer to the people?
3: Well, I think you have to look at the underlying issue of why neighborhoods change, and why aren't second and third generation family members not seeing value in the neighborhood where their grandmother or grandfather lives? You know, it's, it's hard to compete as a hardworking or an older neighborhood with the downtowns of a city or the new neighborhood that's gated with the pool and a gym and all these amenities that draw the attention of the younger generations. You know, so what's left with these neighborhoods, you know, you have elderly, or you know, in most cases, you know, people who have called that place home for many years, um, now having to keep keep up the maintenance of the home or keep up the property taxes because they're living on a fixed income. So they end up wanting to either get rid of it or pass it down to their children or grandchildren who want nothing to do with the home because their value isn't no longer there other than memories. So the homes are left dilapidated in some cases or sold at an auction block or sold to a house flipper. So how do we restore value in these old neighborhoods so that my generation and generations behind me can see value and wanna live there.
0: Who's responsible when it comes to redeveloping a neighborhood, but again, keeping the flavor of of where we all live?
1: It's an interesting problem. I mean, I I agree with Betty that one of the keys is the uh, construction of permanent affordable housing. And um, it's been interesting, particularly in downtown development. Uh, We just built the Marist College and the Uh, That senior affordable housing on the corner of church and Broadway. And uh, when we were doing that project, we were criticized by a lot of folks downtown saying, you know, we have a lot of affordable housing downtown. We need market rate housing. And my answer was always the same, is the market you don't need to worry about. What we need to do is is put that affordable housing in early so that uh, that affordable housing can stay when the the more expensive market washes over and you wind up with a mixed mixed income neighborhood. And, and that's frankly what's happening downtown. Building and developing permanent affordable housing is in my, in my experience, the very best first effort at preserving the affordability of neighborhoods.
0: Is there a way or should there be a way to reward local developers like Jesus versus out-of-town developers so we can hope to keep some of that flavor of the neighborhood as it grows?
2: Well I think that's that's one of the issues and one of the problems that we've had with the gentrification that's going on and while we have we do have a lot of uh, senior housing and and uh special needs housing people with disabilities housing i think that we're still missing the workforce housing we're missing the even the natural occurring affordable housing without subsidy you know people that aren't going to get a section 8 voucher or they're not going to get any subsidy and that's what's missing and the reason that we see it's missing is because developers are taking advantage of all the incentives that they're being given you know while their taxes are being uh waived all of the other uh the residents and businesses their taxes are going up and so there's an imbalance and i think that that's where some of the frustration is
0: around the university we're seeing now these big high-rises go in uh, as private student housing Do you all think that we will start to see, in areas like West University and right around the university, the return of single families uh, into a lot of those homes that students had occupied?
1: I think so. I think uh, that a lot of the development of high-rise student housing in that intensity of use is going to dry up the market to some extent for uh, slumlords in those neighborhoods who have been renting to students without ever fixing up uh, the property at all. Uh, But it's an interesting question. In the Miles neighborhood and the Rincon Heights neighborhood, uh, we can't go to our local Miles school. Uh, The Miles school is a lottery system, so there are ways that uh, don't involve subsidy that really can revitalize neighborhoods. TUSD, for example, could encourage the back end of what you're describing, encouraging young families to move into what I think will be vacated landlord houses by incentivizing and getting families who could then walk to a school that is, that is valued.
0: Jesus, when you're going to go develop a property, be it a business property or a residential property, what type of incentives need to be there to make sure that it's developed responsibly for the neighborhood?
3: Well, it comes down to value exchange and value perception. Um, my business partner who's in the audience, um, him and I have never used one incentive from any government entity to develop our properties, we see the value in neighborhoods as they are. We both grew up on the south and southwest sides of Tucson. So as kids, we had to drive across town uh, to either go to the movies or go to the mall or shopping. And I remember what it was to have to do that. So him and I have you know, a focus on bringing some of those retail you know, goods and services that were lacking when we were kids, bringing those back to our sides of town so people don't have to drive across town anymore. So to us, it's just seeing the value, number one, in, in where the property sits geographically. Um, and number two, um, bringing fun and new concepts, uh, supporting small and local business. Those, those are all values that we see um, when making a decision to, to buy and develop a property.
2: But sometimes I think what happens when people come into neighborhoods that have sat pretty much dormant and forgotten for a long time, the, the people coming in forget that there's a whole community out there that they should be reaching out to in advance. It's their community and you're coming in and there has to be, they have to be more sensitive to that, you know, and and really bring the people in at the beginning instead of at the end. And I think that if more developers, big or small, looked at it from that perspective, they wouldn't get the resistance that they get many times.
0: What about protections for renters? Where we're talking mostly about homeowners, but what about protections for renters?
2: The state laws are always in favor of, of the landlord, the, the owner of the property. So we have to change the tenant landlord laws for one to, to try <laughs> to... Based on the applause, a
0: popular idea.
2: (laughs) Well, because you have to enact better laws, better protections for renters. We have to have better anti-eviction laws and uh, rent control, especially in gentrifying. We're talking about gentrifying neighborhoods. I mean, it's unheard of what people are paying for rent right now.
1: One of the things we're fighting against in a large scale is that There's a very strong and organized real estate lobby. So rent control has been illegal in Arizona for the last 25 years, as put in place by a real estate lobby. I was on the Housing Commission many years ago, and we tried to institute a um, property transfer tax, quite a common tax in other states, before we could even breathe that the real estate lobby went and made that illegal in Arizona.
0: What would be the advantage of a property transfer tax? A
1: property transfer tax could be a very, very small tax. It would typically be mostly charged to people flipping property. So every time a property was sold, there was a 0.1% tax on that, which would then go into a fund, as we were proposing, to support affordable housing. I think it's important also to understand that gentrification is a national phenomenon and it's pretty predictable in how it unfolds as a process. And everywhere where it occurs, developers are not the first phase of that. The first phase of, of gentrification in almost every city I've ever seen is folks looking for a cool place to live with a little more economic ability to move into a good location or interesting housing or older housing and so the first wave, and you can read the literature about gentrification, are, are what folks call pioneers, whose economic situation is not very different than the people who currently live there. The second phase is usually investment and remodeling and rehabilitation, and then usually new investment, new construction is really the final phase of gentrification, not the first one.
3: Well, I think geographically, too, you have a lot of these older barrios that are kind of around a downtown or a central point that are walkable. You can ride a bike, fairly easy to get central. Um, a lot of the newer neighborhoods you see, the majority of them are all outskirts exactly. in the county. They're not very well built. I think what you're buying is location and then quality build are some of the things that I know people do look for.
0: That was Jesus Bonias, Corky Poster, and Betty Viegas discussing gentrification and neighborhood change. We taped this show at a live event last week. Our second panel at the Dunbar Auditorium featured people representing their neighborhoods. Gracie Soto from Barrio Anita, Scott Egan from Barrio Hollywood, Debbie Chess from Dunbar Spring, and Lisette DeMars from West University. Each panelist began by describing how they've seen their neighborhood change. Gracie Soto shared her perspective first.
4: The change in my neighborhood, I've seen people from generations of families being there to people moving out, new people coming in, renters, you know. I think it's just been really quiet for a long, it was quiet for a long time. It was dormant for a long time. And these last couple of years, um, people have gotten notice that their neighborhoods were changing and some of them weren't happy with it. And I think that's where the fight comes in, where the gentrification. So I see a lot of movement now in, in my neighborhood as far as wanting to fight for homes and keeping their nanas and their families in their neighborhoods.
0: Debbie, how about this this neighborhood that we're sitting in right now?
5: I feel very lucky that I'm one of the few people who can live where they work. I live a few blocks from here um, and work here. And so um, although I've only lived in the neighborhood for three years, um, my interest in the neighborhood and specifically this space has been the nine, ten years that I've lived in Tucson. And um, what I've seen in, in Dunbar Spring is a really interesting um, kind of push and pull with this space, this 100-year-old space, and the transition of the neighborhood, the residents of this neighborhood, and the contention um, that that presents, In and it's completely race-based, I have to say, um, and preservation of culture and ownership, and it's, really encouraging because it creates opportunity for claiming space in a way that needs to happen, specifically around this space, but also the people of color that that occupy the neighborhood that are residents in this neighborhood.
6: Scott, how are things in Barrio Hollywood? Uh, Well, my wife and I moved into Hollywood about 40 years ago. We love the neighborhood. Um, We're very proud to be in Barrio Hollywood because our neighborhood united together to fight the city when they tried to sell 114 acres of urban green space known as the El Rio Golf Course. We united together with other neighborhoods and fought them tooth and nail. Uh, They tried everything to sell that property to a developer to come in and wipe out uh, a crucial space for our neighborhood. And We found out that the city was involved in what I think is illegal uh, activities. they tried to um, appraise the land for less than it was worth, which is a violation of the gift clause or ordinance. They tried to put a lot of pressure on Barrio Hollywood in, in many ways to go along with it. It caused a lot of uh, conflict with some of the people in the, some of the businesses in the neighborhood. But we won at the end, and it was through, uh, through fighting hard and, and uniting. How were
0: things in West
6: University?
7: Well, I'm sure many of you have been into the downtown area recently, so it's um, very exciting. Things are changing very rapidly, and you know the neighborhood has a lot of mixed feelings about that. It's exciting to welcome the community all the time, but um, we're also seeing a huge influx of um, student housing, and there's a lot of questions about how much of that is needed and where it's being put and how it's being developed. Um, so our neighborhood has really activated in the last couple of years to work with the developers so that we're not developed on top of but we're developing in partnership with them it's been a steep learning curve but we've had some recent successes in partnership with the fourth avenue coalition
0: each of you has mentioned neighborhoods coming together to fight something you've had successes but do you feel successful
5: the dunbar is in such a unique position because now i'm speaking as as dunbar this space. Where we're sitting now. Where we're sitting now. We exist as a cultural organization and our goals and mission for the Dunbar is to preserve and elevate African American culture and history and the contributions of the African American community, not just to this space, but to Tucson and Southern Arizona as a whole. That isn't necessarily the mission, vision, and values of the neighborhood. And so, As we work to preserve this space, sometimes the neighborhood association is not our best ally. Let me back up and say, I think that what isn't discussed in this conversation about gentrification is the role, the political power of neighborhood associations. And that as communities start to gentrify, if that is the validity of the political voice of neighborhoods, it's not necessarily represented of the, the the fabric of what makes those neighborhoods unique. Gracie. Now as president of Barrio
4: Anita, I think it takes a neighborhood association to open people's eyes. We gotta knock on doors. We gotta be at every meeting. We gotta, you know, we gotta push it as hard as we can. At the end of the day, we, if we don't fight together, we're gonna fall together. So making sure that these new developers come in we couldn't work with them gentrification i don't think has to be that scary but you got to be fierce and you got to be strong and you got to demand what you want and what you don't want and i think that those conversations need to be spoken more about in neighborhood association meetings
0: lissette in the west university fourth avenue area you guys created the community benefits template first of all for folks who don't know what it is can you explain it and is that something that helps to fight and but can be exported to Gracie's neighborhood, Scott's neighborhood, Debbie's neighborhood.
7: What happened in our neighborhood was incentives and um, exceptions were being made for developers and so we're a scrappy little group of of, um, community members who didn't really loved the direction this was going, got together and said there has to be power in numbers. And one of the things that our, our neighborhood did was we bonded together with our surrounding neighborhoods as well as businesses and other stakeholders, community members who are passionate about the district, to create what we call the Fourth Avenue Coalition. And using that coalition, we created Arizona's first community benefits agreement. And. What a CBA is is a legally binding agreement, ours runs with the land, that holds developers accountable for some of the um, things that a neighborhood might really need. So I'll give you concrete examples. The CBA we built was with the Flycatcher development and we asked for things in the cba like 12-month leases instead of nine-month leases those are very tangible things that help the neighborhood Um, it means that the people that are living there are actually connecting to the neighborhood it's great if they're students that's awesome we love it what they stay here throughout the whole summer because that's really when the businesses need the most support we built in some rent control for the local businesses that will be on the bottom floor we added a public drinking fountain um, because that was really important to the neighborhood That as we see these these public spaces become gated communities that frankly none of us can afford to live in. Um, We wanted to make sure that that space was still accessible by the neighborhood. So um, the CBA offers an opportunity to build in accountability and also some teeth into those development incentives that get given away by by our city sometimes.
0: Scott, you wanted to jump in earlier and I cut you off, so
7: let me give you a chance.
6: In terms of what, what neighborhoods can learn, Um, You know, I've shared with some of the neighborhood people what what Barrio Hollywood went through. After we fought the city over the sale of the El Rio golf course, what happened was a very strange thing. We have elections every two years in Barrio Hollywood for our board. And usually, most people in neighborhoods, you know, you're begging people to be on the board. And this one year, all of a sudden, a whole bunch of people showed up. We had no idea who they were. They'd never been to a meeting before. I've been in the neighborhood association since it was formed in 1989. All of a sudden, these people showed up. Who are you? Who are you? Well, I'm connected with the business because our bylaws, like I would bet you almost all of your bylaws in your neighborhood associations, say residents and businesses can vote in your elections. Sounds pretty reasonable. Except our election was packed with people, like I said, would never been to a meeting, and we're like, who are you? well, my cousin owns this, we have a family business in Hollywood and therefore I get to vote. So they took over our neighborhood association. They took over with three votes. They had three more votes than, than uh, we had. So we said, this is wrong. We should have our bylaws that say only residents get to vote. The city said to us, if you do that, we are going to strike you from the neighborhood list. We are not going to co- cooperate with Body of Hollywood with your brush and bulky or anything else. You will be ostracized from the city of Tucson. And if you know Barrio Hollywood, we said, screw you. And we went ahead and voted overwhelmingly to change our bylaws. The city backed down. And that's the lesson, the city backs down.
0: People who oppose gentrification are often accused of being against progress. How do you combat that attitude? And is it true? Are you all, or any of you, against progress? Yeah, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, you said you were, everybody else shook their head no. <laughs> but uh, h- how do you combat that attitude?
4: It's inevitable. Change is gonna happen. And I think it's how we look at it. I think it's how, how we fight for our neighborhoods um, because it is a fight. Right now we are working with, a develop- with developers we are having conversations, we are sitting with them, and um, we're working with Ward 1, um, with the city, and uh, you know, just, just going back with the residents and, and giving them the feedback of what is really going on, what the conversations are about. And I think that when residents are involved, when you ask residents, what do you want? What are your opinions? What are your ideas? I think that's what matters. So working with developers is basically our way of saving our neighborhood and preserving it as much as we can with affordable housing, with the land trust, so that maybe we can use Barrio Anita as an example. If, God willing, everything goes as planned and everything works out, it will be a win-win-win
7: situation for all of us.
0: Lissette, you were nodding along. Yeah,
7: same, a lot resonates. We know that development is coming to the downtown and the 4th Avenue and the West University area. There's no stopping it because infill is a good idea. That is where the people are, and we want to reduce our footprint by providing more resources and housing there. And so um, knowing that the development is coming, we can choose to ha- have it happen to us or we can be involved in participating in it. This was the first one. It's not going to be our favorite. It was really just getting our elbow in the door so that we can force our way in the room. And now we're there and we're seeing much more receptive, just re- reception period from the developers. They're now approaching us. And instead of us coming in at the end of the game, they're coming they're coming to us at the, early on. We could sit back and be upset about development or we could get involved in building a development that was going to benefit our community.
5: Um, Debbie, yeah.
7: Yeah, I think that embedded in that question is a,
5: um, a lack of imagination. We pose these arguments as either ors, you know, it's either development is bad and it's encroaching and it's repressive and it's, or you have slum neighborhoods and disinvestment in neighborhoods. What we haven't been able to do as a society, as a community, is say it's not an either or, it's a both and. I know that's used a lot. It's a both and. And when we lack imagination, when we lack um, the ability to communicate with one another, communicate with developers, that's when you get these polarized options. I think we need to break down that either or argument and, and use our imaginations. Of, of what a well invested, affordable, equitable, inclusive community can look like.
0: That was Debbie Chess Maybe, Lisette DeMars, Scott Egan, and Gracie Soto discussing gentrification and neighborhood change at our live community conversation last week. We also delved into many questions from the audience. To hear the full conversation, visit our website where you can also find the other parts of our continuing series, Finding Home. And that's The Buzz for this week. Next week, we'll take a look at a new project by Tucson Electric Power to expand its use of renewable energy. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Ariana Brocious produced and edited the show. Special thanks to Denny Warders, Trey Diston, Jordan Chin, Gage Judd, and Carolyn Yowsey for their help recording this week's episode. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, Andrea Kelly is the news director, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening.